friends. Thank you for tuning into this week's episode of the Main Idea Podcast, where today I have the pleasure of sitting down with Robert Drysdale. A quick message for those of you that love this podcast. If you want to support it, please take 30 seconds and leave a five-star review on Apple or Spotify and subscribe to the YouTube channel. This helps the show get discovered organically and helps me continue to bring on amazing guests. Also, there are now timestamps in the show notes, so please feel free to jump around to the part that interests you most, although I always recommend listening to the episode in its entirety. Robert Drysdale is a fourth-degree Brazilian jiu-jitsu black belt under Leo Vieira and remains the only American competitor to have ever won both the IBJJF and ADCC World Championships. Robert holds a successful mixed martial arts career in Legacy Fighting Championships, where he became the 2016 light heavyweight champion of the world. He also fought in the UFC and has recently been brought on as a coach for season 31 of The Ultimate Fighter, which will end with a bout between Conor McGregor and Michael Chandler. Robert holds a bachelor's in history and published this book, Opening Closed Guard, The Origins of Jiu-Jitsu in Brazil, in 2020. After reading this book, I feel it should be mandatory reading for anyone who practices jiu-jitsu, both for its historic value as well as its pragmatic view of jiu-jitsu's history, lineage, and the mythology that helped this amazing art grow to where it is today. I hope that you enjoyed this episode as much as I did. Without further ado, Robert Drysdale. Well, Robert, I want to say thank you so much for taking the time to be here. Tough season 31, officially on deck with that, so I can only imagine that you are insanely busy. So an hour and a half out of your day is much appreciated. Yeah, you catch me in between uh, uh, training sessions, right? So this is my lunch break, and then I'm about to head over as soon as I'm done over here. So it's a, it's a rush. How did, uh, how did that come about this season? Did you know that that was going to be in the works, or was this something that kind of popped out of nowhere for you? It was very random, man. Um, I, uh, my, my former manager also manages uh, Mike Chandler, and they were looking for a jiu-jitsu coach, and my name came up. And um, I, I knew Chandler. He had been to my gym before. I didn't know him well, but we had actually never worked together. But we have a lot of friends in common, and I'd worked with uh, Ryan Bader before at The Ultimate Fighter. Uh, so, um, yeah, so I guess just like we had a lot of friends in common. So he and like my manager reached out and said, Hey man, you, you want to be, this is going to be probably the biggest season ever for the, the, in the, you know, as far as ultimate fighters are concerned. So yeah, I was like, yeah, sure. I mean, it's in Vegas, 10 minutes from my house. So it's, it's convenient in that regard. I don't have to travel like some of these other guys. Right. So I, I actually really like the show. I know the whole production team. I think this is my fifth season, you know, you know so, oh, wow. yeah, yeah, it's, uh, as a fan, you know, someone standing on the outside, I can only imagine how insane the production timeline is for a show like that to get all these people in the same place at the same time, run through the entire thing. On top of that, it's fighting. So you're, you're having people exert themselves and then recover and then do it again. All the coaches who have families, lives, gyms, everything else going on. So it's got to be extremely chaotic. <laughs> It's yeah, man. It's there's a lot happening, and it's it has like a TV show, I mean, the, the TV show pace. Like we're we're not in charge of everything like we would like to be. It's it's a production, and ultimately the production dictates the, the pace of things. And because the priority is the customer, right? It's the it's the viewer. So everything kind of goes around that, like the quality of the sound, the quality of the images, like the that's that's the. I mean, it is a TV show, but you know, considering like we have a lot of freedom as far as how we run the show, as far as the training goes, and. It's a lot of fun, man. I always, I think my favorite thing is, is making a lot of new friends 
you know, a lot of new contacts in the process. Now that you've gone through the process of helping write, produce, interview, create, and do everything that we're really supposed to talk about here, which is this book and the movie, when you're on set, do you see everything different now? Oh, yeah. <laughs> like, what, what sticks out to you? That, like lighting, sound, you know, these yeah. things become important all of a sudden. I think I became a slightly better photographer, too, as a result. <laughs> uh, you know, little things that you, you develop an aesthetic eye. It, it kind of opens some doors. It's really interesting because I, I, I could see myself liking that. You yeah. know, it's my thing. I'm beginner still, but I could see that there, it's a huge world. And um, I, I enjoy it. I, I enjoy the process of creation. Well, I, I'd love to start with this book, which a little bit of context for you. Like I'm, I'm five years into my time doing jujitsu, a lifetime as an athlete formally. Um, but I almost feel like this, is supposed, this should have been required reading <laughs> when, when you get involved because my whole understanding of the world of jujitsu has really been flipped upside down after reading this. And even though it's, it's really an account of the production experience of you guys going through and filming this video and all the lengths that you went to to get all these key players involved and truly hear their story, not project the story that you want to tell, but hear all these different varying opinions and stories and history, it, it upended everything that I thought I knew about this, this art form that I love so much. Was, where was there a point in, in your history as a, a mixed martial artist, as a judo or jiu-jitsu practitioner, where you felt like there was something else to be heard here? Um, it was, you know, I, the back of my mind, you know, like I know how narratives go. Um, I know how like stories get blown out of proportion. You know, I, I won't say my skepticism is always on point. I'm not saying anything that doesn't fail. <laughs> But generally speaking, I'm, I'm a very skeptic person compared to most. I think I, I'm more of a, you know, I'll question narratives like any kind of narratives. And like, I wonder, like, is this really happened that way? It's always had that in the back of my mind. But it was like, like I tell the book, it was a story of like a student asking me why I didn't have the pictures on the wall and me bumping into Shockey by Roberto Pedreira. And, and like, it was like, a, it had a big impact on me when I read those, that book. Because a series, right? It's like three of them. And it was, it was masterfully done. It had a huge impact on me in terms of like, historiography um you know being i think being blunt and passion free and just like giving the facts as they are like when you i don't know if you ever read shocky but like it's it's, it's a very good it's, it's a dip to heavy read it's not an easy read but it gives you the facts and says like you can draw the conclusions on the facts. the facts are here and then what came across was a very different narrative like he wasn't pushing it but it was the facts were pointing in that direction and that's when I had the idea of like, look, I cannot outdo what this guy has done in terms mm -hmm. of historiography. It's untouchable. So, but I think I can help bring the story to, you know, people's awareness because I'm shocked by what I'm reading here. Like this is very yeah. different from what I had heard. And, you know, and it's more interesting. It doesn't take credit from the Gracie family. I think in some ways it even just shines a different light on what actually happened. A more realistic, less, uh, what's the word? Um, less romantic perhaps less like yeah. putting pedestals like i never i've never been more of the much of the hero type i'm more of the anti-hero type like i like the common person like i like the the story of the underdog i like the quiet people who do the heavy lifting that don't always get recognized and i think that's you know as as a semi-historian i that's my outlook on things you know i always like i'm always citing i prefer the american militias over george washington 
to me. That's always been. <laughs> it's just a preference. And it's not because I'm trying to pick a fight with tradition. It's more like, wait a second, man. These guys were actually getting shot at in the mud. And they had a far more important role than they were given credit for during the American Revolution, for example. So when I read stories about guys like George Gracie, Carlson Gracie, George Medee, like these guys were important, man. Like Takeo Yano, the Ono brothers. These guys are super interesting characters. They were just not good at marketing. And as we know, marketing wins the day. Like it's not, we don't live in a meritocracy as much as we would like to say so. It's all marketing. It does seem like, you know, in the book you said, I now can't help but see the ways in which Brazilian jiu-jitsu looks as or lacks a central code or morality for its students to uphold on and off the mat. And that, that stuck out with me a lot because I felt like there are these two worlds that you're showing. And on one hand, you have like Kato and Fada who kind of embody this honor, humility, code of ethics. And then on the other side with the Gracie family, which is the story a lot of us get when we get involved in this, you had this juggernaut of marketing and growth and kind of the business aspect of it. And in some sense, they're two sides of the same coin in that they represent different versions of this same art and both are extremely important. And I think that the growth of jujitsu now, you can't accept it without credit to what the Gracie family played in that. Yep. Much they did contribute. Whether they, they didn't, uh, you know, we know now after reading this that they were not the ones who created jujitsu. But they did play this integral role in its growth, especially within the United States, which for whatever reason, you know, judo had been around for so long and it just didn't grow the way that jiu-jitsu did. Yeah, yeah it's, it's a super interesting story, man. I think I, I always say this in, in a pretty much every interview, like the actual story is far more interesting than the, the official narrative, you know, like the one we heard yeah. from. And you got, I mean, and, I, and it's interesting because uh, how Raleigh Gracie reached out to me about a year or two ago, and he, I, I can't, I think that he asked for a copy of my book. Would you send me a copy of your book? I'm like, that's Raleigh Gracie. Why not? You know, send him a copy. A couple months later, you know, he reaches out to me. He's like, man, I really like your book. This is coming from Raleigh Gracie. I was, I was a little surprised. You know, he goes, I thought you were fair, but you weren't fair <laughs> with my father. You weren't fair with my father, Horion. You know what I said? I said, you're right. You're right. You know, like I was not, I mean, after learning more about Horian's story and that there's a really good book that, you know, if you like, it's worth defending by uh, Richard Breslin and Scott Burr. You should definitely have it. Yeah. And, and it tells oh, Horian's story. On that shelf, that shelf. The story of Richard Bresler yeah. as the story of Horian. And then I, I gained like a whole new respect for him. And I told Ra, like, I will correct that in the second edition. There, there will be a second edition at some point. And I will correct that. You know, your father was extremely important for the history of jiu-jitsu. Now, in, in Horion's defense, he's not a historian. He is the oldest son of Hugh Gracie. And if I ask you, Abe, to tell me your story or the story of your son or the story of your father, there's a very good chance you would tell a story that makes you, your dad, and your son, and your family, you know, paint them under a positive light, maybe in detriment of other people. Does that make you dishonest? Maybe. But I don't think, I think humans are innately dishonest in that regard. And it's not Horion, it's not me, it's not you, it's just human nature. We we have a bias towards our friends and family because we believe in loyalty. Loyalty is important to us, but loyalty often makes us dishonest, you know? And, and I don't think it was, in, it was, there was some intentionality to it. I don't think it was all innocent. There's certainly, it was certainly shrewd marketing, but again, how much did he know? He heard what he heard. There's no way Horan could have known what had happened in Belain in 1921. Like he wasn't there. He wasn't born. It's not his fault. He's just relaying what he heard. 
Well, and that's it's interesting you bring up uh, Richard's book. I had him on the show after reading his book, and I, I was that again was uh, an introduction into the history of jujitsu that I just hadn't considered. I, I grew up in Colorado. I wasn't exposed to how booming it was here in California, and hearing him talk about that and this story, I basically walked away from that book going, "Jujitsu is in America because of Horry and Gracie." Then I read your book, and I go, "Kinda." Also, Fabio Baring, also Gal Almeida. Like, you see that it's uh, it's really interesting what you say about honesty because uh, in your part in the book when you talk to Hoist, Hoist's recounts of his father are very honorable, right? Like, if I'm a, a dad, I want my son to talk about me the way that Horian talks about his father because he can see transparently the role that he played the value that he had, and he also understands that there's some history here that maybe isn't part of their narrative. And in a way, he dusts it under the rug as like, hey, what do you, what do you want me to say? Like, maybe they spent two months with uh, Mitsuya Maeda. Maybe they spent five minutes. I don't know. It's, it's whatever. But hey, look at where we are today, right? And it does make me think. It, it makes me think about honesty and loyalty and what the value of those characteristics are in a in jujitsu, sure, but in a society as well, you know, how am I honest to you? How am I honest to my best friends, myself? And where is variance uh, within that trait admirable? And where does it actually hurt us? Yeah, I mean, it's it's a it's a conflict, you know. Like it's easy to say everyone believes they're honest. I mean, everyone believes they're a good guy. I mean, Hitler believed this thing. I have no doubt. You know, it's just it's it's we, we, as as a human, you're conflicted. You know, your loyalty with your honesty. So, you know, being transparent. Like, if you're loyal to your father, your family, your friends, would you lie for them? For sure, which is scary to say. <laughs> well, I mean, legally, the right thing to do is to report if you committed a crime. You know, depending on the level of crime, that might incline you to protect him or, you know, report him. But, like, it, it's, uh, it, it's a difficult, it's a conflict. It's not always, these things are not clear. To, you know, it's not always easy to decide what the right thing to do is. And, and and I think that they, at the end of the day, you know, there was some self-interest coexisting with like noble motivations for promoting jujitsu. They believed in what they were doing. I admire that generation far more than I admire what's going on today because they were the hustlers who made it happen. They believed in jujitsu like some people believe in religion. Some people call it cultish. It was like a cult. In fact, we had in my new book, there's an interviewee who actually described jujitsu in the 70s in Brazil like a cult. Like it was like a cult, you know, because you had to abide by the diet, the rules of jujitsu. We are better, we're different. They saw themselves as like this chosen people of martial arts, you know, and I think it's beautiful. I admire it. But for to sell that to the world, they, they you know, they bend the rules a lot, you know, and, and it's it's one of those things. I keep asking that question, you know, does the end justify the means? It's, it's, it's not so simple. It's funny you bring up... Uh one religion and cults cults was going to be one thing I was going to ask you about specifically because in reading your book it's really interesting hearing I mean let me let me preface it by this I think that currently entitlement is a big underlying characteristic of a lot of people in the world and I I don't necessarily think it's by their own fault I just think the world in which we live uh, it's advantageous to be interested in yourself to grow whatever it is you want to grow. So I think that people tend to have more interest in propagating their own thing. I mean, the show, even an example, right? I want this show to grow and I want it to get out there. Yeah. When you look back at the time, the way these 
practitioners, even grandmasters, you know, it's incredible that you were able to speak to them before they passed, but you, you speak to these grandmasters and the way that they talk about everyone before them is so, it's all, it's so like, um, I was so lucky to be around them. I was so grateful to have walked the street that day when the academy was open and learn. And I don't feel that when, I don't know, when you take something on now, when, when you're exposed to a master or, or someone who's truly skilled in their craft, you don't hear that same respect and admiration that is spoken about. And I think from the outside looking in, it could seem very cultish, right? Like, is that a belief or were you groomed to say that about them? Were you conditioned to see them in that light or do you actually feel that way? And it, it is a fine line. I think it's a different world. We're we're living in a in an era where like the, the hierarchy has been dispersed. Like the people don't believe in that anymore. Like I remember growing up, you know, I'm not that I'm 41, you know, but when I was a kid, you never talk back to your elders. Never talk back to your elders. That was established. You know, you had an older person in the room, you shut up when they talked. And that was like enforced in my family. I don't think I don't know any family today that enforces that. Like people tell old people to shut up all the time. You know, so that's one thing. I think the world has changed in a sense where, you know, it sounds like, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm preaching when I say this, but we don't have values anymore. Like we're just, it's not things we talk about or teach children anymore. So there's that. It was a different world. You know, Brazil was a different, very different place in the 1950s when these guys were training. But they, you, it's very clear that they, they held Carlos and Helio up to, you know, a very, like almost like you know, like they were the prophets of what they. It, it, it is similar to religion in some ways. They put these guys on pedestals. And question till this day, you talk to some of these old timers, and like they, they just they, it's they're so careful about when they talk about it. And I don't. I think it was you know to answer your question. I think it was something that was trained. I think it was something that was ingrained. It was part of the, the generation this respect for the people that came before them, right? In this case, the, the forerunners of what we now call Brazilian Jiu Jitsu. But mainly it was like they, 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 they assimilated those beliefs. Like they became, like they looked up to those guys. Like they, it's very ingrained. Like these guys could read my book and they can tell me, Rob, great book. I love what you did. But at the same time, it doesn't change the fact in the back of their mind, Helio saved Jiu-Jitsu from Judo. Like it's, it's still in their brain. It's very difficult. You can't get that out of their heads that Helio was not doing what we call Jiu-Jitsu. He was doing Judo. And they modified it. They blended it with some volatudo techniques and they created a new system, but there was no invention, you know, but in their heads, like the narrative is still like, no, no, no. Helio revolutionized the guard and he saved real jujitsu from judo because the judokas were hiding it. And it's still part, they, it's, you can't, it's like, you can't teach an old horse new tricks. You know, it's like thing goes, and it's the same. It's what you're dealing with. Like, even if they like the book, they're still not, it's like the people that are absolute fanatics about the story. Like they can read the book and give them the facts. You can show them newspaper articles and they go, no, no, no. I'll give you another one. That 1925 date. Helio Gracie, according to himself, not according to me, according to Helio's own words, he had never heard of jujitsu up to 1929. Okay. It's not, it's like, it's like, it doesn't matter. It's like, it's, it's dogma. It's like, no, 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 no. Like he was training with his brothers at home. They were training. They were very skilled. Like, but they had never heard of jujitsu up to 1929, you know, according to him. So it's, it's, that's what you're doing. So it's very difficult to get that out. So, you know, the hope is that over time, 
as this generation phase, younger generations are going to, you know, get like a different approach and go, okay, Julio was extremely important, but he was not a saint and he didn't invent anything. He was just a very strong political force at the right time, at the right moment, you know, everything aligned and it worked out at the end, but you don't have to put these guys on pedestals to appreciate what they did. As a historian, someone who has truly studied history and then has now taken that passion and pragmatism into this movie, what role do you feel like like mysticism or mythology kind of plays in the growth of something like this? Because that's a that's like an ingrained part of storytelling. You know, we, we create idols and we create stories from Greek mythology to Roman mythology to I mean you could even say religion to stories like the growth of jujitsu, it almost like we need something to latch onto like that. Like you kind of need a Helio Gracie to believe in what you're doing. Like, do you feel like that's been an integral part? And and even now with the facts, like who cares? We, you know, we have this thing and it's, what are your thoughts on that? Well, I honestly, man, I'm, I'm conflicted about it. You know, not as far as myself goes. Like I, I like I said, I've always been more of a skeptic you know, person, and you can show me your flaws and you can do, and I, I still, I'm not going to think less of you, you know, I, I could still be your friend and still empathize with you, you know, like some people, they need someone to look up to that is just absolutely perfect. That's why Hicks and Grace sell so well, because he never lost, he never tapped. And like, I have on record purple belts tapping Hicks and Gracie as a black belt. It's a, it's a known fact that once these old times, it was getting, like, he went to Carlson Gracie gym. Carlson Grace's gym back in the day, he was already a black belt, got tapped by a purple belt. This is, we have witnesses. This is not controversial, you know, but, yeah, but it's, it's not, it's not hearsay. It's, it's coming from like the, the best quality sources you can think of. Like people that don't even, don't even like to talk about it. It's like milk in a stone to get, you know, get this information. Out of these guys. We don't like to talk about it because they're very loyal, but people, I wrote a review of Hickson's book, which I thought was very helpful. I mean, I, there's a lot of things I liked about the book. And I, I wrote a review. You can read it on GTR, Global Training Report, if you guys care to read it. But I talk about this, like the importance of the myth. Hickson comes along with this, like this Greek hero that does this, this, and that, and he's invincible. And and I, in some ways, it helped you, Jesus. Clearly, it's not true. Clearly, you know, no one's invincible. Like, there's no such thing as like, of course, people lose in practice. It's just normal, you know. And and but people like the narrative because it makes them feel good about what they're doing. It gives them a sense of direction. If the person leading them is unbreakable, I imagine if I'm a general and I say, soldiers, by the way, tomorrow we're going to war, but I'm scared just like you guys. In fact, I couldn't. I called my mom and I'm shitting my pants and I'm super nervous, but we're going to go to war now. You don't want to hear that. You want to who's absolutely confident about where he's going and what he's doing. And this is where confidence is so scary to me because it leads people in very strange directions. You get someone confident person in the room. Telling to go left, right, center, jump high, jump low, and people okay. You sound like you know where you're going, and and people follow. I I don't like that, but maybe I'm different. I'm not saying better or worse, but I I understand the need that some people may have to have that sort of certainty in front of them, in order to you know make sense of existence, you know, and and I and I think that's something very ingrained in, in the human mind, more so in some people than others. Uh, so, so in some ways, like, I feel like when I give them these facts, I'm shattering people's dreams and, and their hopes. And I, I, I feel like I'm doing more harm than good in some ways, but I, I feel the truth is better than a lie. I, I think that that's, that's where goodness comes from. It comes from the truth, not from lying, you know, but some people need a myth. I, it's hard to, it's a conflict. 
you had a I was trying to find the the quote. You had a really good comment about about the past and the present. Um and I, I can't find it in my notes here, but it it plays on this that like because what you're hap- what you're describing happened to me when I read the book. And and it especially coming after, you know, I read Hickson's book, I read Richard Bressler's book, I read your book, and my perception of, of, of jujitsu, of its its place in America, its place in Brazil, and just kind of the whole overarching theme of the martial art of Brazilian jiu-jitsu, it was shattering it a little bit. But I think to the, the point you mentioned in the book about the present, like setting, it was something about the present setting us up for the future. Like history is really just an acknowledgement of the present. And it's with that knowledge that we can affect what we do going forward. And the reality is that if we don't talk about the actual true history of what was going on, one, we're doomed to repeat it. And two, you, you don't know, and we don't know because we can't see into the future, if that outcome is going to be positive or negative. But once we say the truth about it, it's on the table. And now everyone, when, when here's, here's <laughs> what stuck out to me the most. I have a real, a real strange thing now with bowing to the photos because it feels really uh, not fake. It just feels really odd to be doing that when now I know what I know from reading your book. And it's those little moments that like you become aware of this history and it kind of makes you question, well, why are we doing this? This yeah. doesn't really make sense. Yeah. And not that we have to have a town hall meeting at, at the Jiu-Jitsu Academy and be like, hey, what, what do we want to do about the photos on the wall? Yeah. But that should be something that we talk about to then set up the future. And how are we going to talk about this as we go forward? You know, it is important to bring these things up, whether it shatters people's understanding of their past or not, because then they're given the tools to actually feel certain ways and think about the future the way they want. Yeah, yeah it's, it's, it's a tough one, man. Like I, ha- I live with the conflict that you're that you're talking about. I have that too because I feel that in some ways it's been harmful to jiu-jitsu maybe what I've done. Like, or, you know, what I didn't, there's not a lot there that's original by the way. A lot, most of it is already you know, in other works even if not explicitly in between the lines you know, I, I'm not, I can barely call myself a historian if I do. Not quite someone did. I mean, I, there's some primary research, you know, but not a lot. But, you know, I, I'm conflicted. Like, man, did I just throw a monkey wrench and like do jiu-jitsu? Because I love jiu-jitsu. I want it to grow. I want it to be, I want it to be the, not just the most practiced martial art in the world. I want it to be the most efficient martial art in the world as well. You know, and I'm in love with what I do. I consider myself a jiu-jitsu soldier. You know, I always, I changed my life in so many ways. You know, but I, I don't, I wonder if people really need the mythology to be able to uphold what jiu-jitsu stands for, to me at least. You know, but I, I don't know, like, I, I have plenty of people in jiu-jitsu I admire, plenty. You know, people I look up to, it's like, hey, man, if you want to put a good quality human being, like someone who did a lot and has, like, all the qualities that I see that should be, you know, uh, on the mats and that, that, that represents, I mean, if you want a candidate, to me, that's Carlson Gracie, man. Carlson is, I mean, it, I mean, you read his story, you learn about the man. It's like, the more you read about him, the more you learn about him. It's like, man, this was the, this was the guy, this was the, this was the man that was like, everyone should be applauding what that guy did because he didn't get the credit for it because he was not into marketing. He was just into doing it, you know? But I mean, if I think that I got a quote in my new book that I love it, it was, it was great. It was the interview with Carlson Jr., his son. And he talks about, you ever see that movie, The Lion King? 
And they go, yeah. And he goes, remember that scene when everyone talks about Mufasa and everyone just runs in fear? It's like, yeah, that's the same with my dad. And it's kind of true. You bring up the name Carlson amongst these, like the hardcore, the zealots, and they all go like this. They look away. They don't want to talk about it because they know. They know, but it's, it, it's, it hurts them politically. It messes with their allegiances and their loyalties. But, you know, but like that's a guy that, you know, he did more than everyone else in this story, if you ask me. He just didn't ask for anything in return. So we don't remember it. But, you know, I'm trying to correct that in the second book. So that's a big part of what it is. So I'm kind of like jumping the gun here a bit. But I don't know, man. Like going back to your question, like it's a tough one, man. Like I, I, I always stand by what's real, even if that hurts me, even if that hurts people around me. I think that that's where anything that is meant to be good should be constructed on the premise that it's truthful. If you're trying to be ready, I don't think you can build good things on a foundation of lies or deceit or deception or even misconceptions or even even if it was honest, an honest mistake or like a, a white lie. I don't think good things come from that. They can, but that's a that's a big maybe, man. I think if you really have good intentions, you should always start with the truth. You know, as best you can, if you can ever get to that point called truth when you're talking about history, but you should at least try. And I think we can get close to it. And I think it's, that's as good as it gets. But I think, you know, some people do need the myth. And it's, I, I think it's unfortunate, but I don't think that's ever going to change. Do you feel like in, in this movie you accomplished the pursuit of truth? No, I don't think that's even possible. I think that, I think that first of all, you know, again, I'm not doing anything that Shocky didn't do before me. One thing I did do, I think, was make it more palatable. The Shocky's a very heavy read. Most people I know cannot get through it. Very, I, I know very few people who finished all, even the first book. Like the vast majority of people couldn't finish the first book. Is it just dense reading, like like uh, like getting through Dostoevsky or something like that, where you just kind of got to grind it out? Dostoevsky is like Disneyland in comparison. Right? Like it's reading <laughs> wow. Film. You know, it's like I mean, and it's super informative. I mean, right. it's just, there's no okay. narration in the sense it's a catalog of what happened in Brazil from an introduction of, of, of martial arts in Brazil and circuses onwards, you know, and it's a catalog of what happened. It's not even centered around the Gracie family. It's just that the Gracie family is central to this story, to the development of jiu-jitsu in Brazil. So they come up a lot, but, you know, it's, it's, um, it's, it's, it's a lot, there's a lot to digest. And I, I don't think that everyone, you know, enjoys that. But my book, I think what it did do was like, may bring the story, I added some interviews. I think I'm at my own insights. Being an American Brazilian, I think I bring a unique perspective that other people could not have brought because, you know, I, I'm half Brazilian. I can say things that other people can't say without being called xenophobic, for example. You know, I can be critical right. of Brazilians. I just like to be critical of Americans, which as a result led Brazilians to think I'm anti-Brazilian and it led Americans to think <laughs> Americans I'm anti <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I would imagine um, writing this book doesn't help your position there, right? Like you're kind of you're doing this knowing, knowing that you're bringing exposure to an otherwise kind of battened down story that's that's passed down um, from a position that is neutral, right? Like like you said, you're not a hundred percent Brazilian, you're not a hundred percent American, but you you're born in America, so you're American and you've competed and accomplished things at the highest level in Brazilian jiu-jitsu and in mixed martial arts. So it's, I don't know who else makes this movie, you know? <laughs> um, 
in some ways, I think I wrote that somewhere in the first book where I go, I knew less than everyone else in this story, but I was well positioned enough to put it all together. So in some ways, yeah, I think I was the right guy to do it because I'm, you know, I'm versed in history. I'm not a professional historian, but I am more versed in history and historiography than the majority of jiu-jitsu practitioners. I think that's fair to say. I can read a text and go, this guy knows what he's doing versus something like, I can tell the difference between Shockey and Hayla Grace's biography in terms of historiography. There's a difference, right? It's not, oh, they're not on par. No, they're not. It's clear. It's clear. It's just, there's, a, there's a gap there. And I'm, you know, I'm fluent in Portuguese and English, you know, and I don't mind spending some time going through old newspapers. It's not my favorite thing to do in the world, but I'll do it if I have. So if I, you know, every now and then you find something interesting, it feels like, you know, it feels like a flying on book. Like you found something. Oh, man, this yeah, is I so was actually, I found this part of the, the book quite enjoyable because I'm, I'm a bilingual speaker in Spanish and English, but not Portuguese. I've always wanted to learn it, but it's been really cool reading it as you, you throw in the word, the Portuguese words, because a lot of this is translation, right? And you're sharing the version with us in English, but you drop some words that stick out and kind of give the contextual alignment of them, but also how they can be taken in different ways. And there was this specific word that Hobson Gracie told you called, which I think I'm pronouncing right, inconsequente, right, is a Portuguese word with a false cognate for inconsequential. But the reality of that word is much different. So maybe you can speak on this because it was, it's a pivotal moment in the book, and it also comes up again in the conclusion. It's something that really stuck with you. So what does this word, one, how do you pronounce it? Two, what does it mean? And three, how has that word impacted kind of your perception of your place in this whole story? You said there's a word in the book. I already knew you were talking about that. Because that really did stick with me. It was, it was a pivotal moment for me as well. Um, in, in consequente. In, in Portuguese, whenever there's an E at the end, it sounds like an, a, a Brazilian I. So, inconsequente. But in, in Brazil, it's more closely uh, associated to irresponsible than meaningless. Like, inconsequent in English would be like something of no matter, right? It doesn't, like, of no importance. Whereas in Portuguese, it means like you're being irresponsible. Um, and I love that Hobson said that because Hobson apologized, like, no, we're going to do things our way and, like, we'll figure it out later. You know, he's, you know, he's very, he's like, let's do what we want to do, but, and then we'll deal with the consequences when we get there kind of thing. And, and it's, it's a very Brazilian thing too. Like it's very, and I love, he said it so nonchalant, like he wasn't, like he wasn't conflicted about it, but I remember asking for life advice because I did it to all the grandmasters. Like, cause I, I mean, I like, I like the elderly because like, that's me 30, 40 years from now. Like, why would I pick his brain? Like I got so much to learn from these people. So everyone, you know, everyone, whenever I had a quiet minute with them, I would always ask, like, so where am I going to be? What's this? What, what are the next 30, 40 years of my life going to look like? And it was almost unanimous that they would say things like, oh, be a good person, spend more time with your kids, you know, forgive and forget. And, you know, and like, which is like typical advice you would expect from, you know, from someone who had lived life. And when I hops and he goes like thinking about it for a second in life. You have to be inconsequential, which is basically telling me to be irresponsible. Yeah. And then, and I, I get it because when you when you when you listen to his life stories, like he's talking about his womanizing back in the day, you know, and it was just like, man, this guy is a miracle that he's not dead when you think about it. Like, how has this guy even made it this? But he lived a very very fast and adventurous life, and I'm not trying to, I'm not criticizing. I there's a part of me that admires his courage and. and 
you know, I mean, I admire the actions all the time, but I think that there's something to be said about a guy who is that willing to live life to the fullest and, you know, and, and get so much out of this, you know, this brief little moment that we, we call existence. So I'm not going to judge him, but I do, there's some things about it that I, you know, that about being inconsequential that comes with problems, you know, and, and I think jujitsu's evolution was somewhat like that, somewhat inconsequential. It wasn't, it wasn't so much intentional. It was more like, I don't think there was a grand plan. It was more about, you know, I don't think in some ways I think they had a broad vision, but it wasn't, it was very different from judo. I think they had a very different game plan for what judo was going to look like a hundred years down the road, you know? Um, But like, it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's a tough one because it's a reflex of Brazilian culture too, you know, and the the Brazilian element is it's, it's part of a success and it's part of a chaos. It's both. It's what makes jiu-jitsu so interesting in a lot of ways. It's the Brazilian side of it, right? It's open software, improve as you wish, figure on the spot. There's no curriculum. We still don't have one. Like, it's like you had schools may have one, but jiu-jitsu does not have a curriculum, right? And then it was always that way. And it was good because it made it super creative. But at the same time, it's like, where's the hierarchy? Where's the order of things? It's just non-existent. Yeah, it seems like that that idea of this word really did lend itself to the, that initial growth. I mean, you think of like the, who was it? Hicks and Gracie and Duarte on the beach, like getting in this fight. I mean, it's, it's this huge moment in this, in that story of jujitsu. And that's crazy. I mean, maybe that's not as crazy to a, a Brazilian or someone who's grown up and being like, dude, people fight all the time, but that kind of, rep- it's the repetition of it. It's not, it didn't just happen once. It was constant. It was, shattering the rules that historically encapsulated martial arts with judo out of Japan and going, this is crazy. We're going to do it this way. And anyone that thinks that we're wrong, we're going to challenge them. And now, you know, you, you did a good job of talking and this is all new to me, but like the circus element and the exposure of fixed fights and how important that was to the growth, right? This marketing element from the very early on stages where you can bring people to this event and have them watch. I mean, it's like, you know, WWE 0.0001 antics. And then it transpires into this crazy kind of cowboy growth of this otherwise very buttoned up, you know, when you talk about Kano and like just that whole era in Japan, how hierarchical it truly was. Like you can't even go do a challenge match or we'll kick you out of the whole academy despite your, your time here your accomplishments, everything. And then here's jujitsu next time. Uh, Go ahead. No, no, uh, no finish. Sorry. Uh, The jujitsu is just on this parallel track, just violating all these (laughs) perceptions. Like it was pretty wild. Yeah. They, um, they, they kind of, they really had a different idea of what fighting was. And in some ways it was very good. Like they, 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 it was, it was, it was, it was a, kicking the butt of all other martial arts who became so focused on tradition and perhaps overly focused on values, they forgot the reality of combat, which is what martial arts is designed for. And you can say, oh, it's about training better human beings. Yes, it's that, that as well, but there's no reason, there's no conflict with teaching, you know, a degree of morality and behavior and manners and being efficient. I don't think these things are mutually exclusive, but, you know, the Gracie family come along with this warrior-like ethos, like this Spartan ethos, and like, this is how what fighting is. They couldn't sell it like judo was selling. They couldn't sell it like kung fu and karate were selling it. 
So they chose different means. Like we're going to fight you on the beach and we're going to do what we got to do to promote it. And you can see their frustration because I can see it too. I'm frustrated like that too. I have things about, and I get it to a degree because there are things that are going on in jujitsu today that everyone believes are absolutely false. They're like, this is wrong. This is factually incorrect. We can back it up. We can verify it. You are wrong. And 99% of the community believes it. And when I say something, I get called a hater. So I'm like, you know, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to say anything, but it's frustrating knowing that you're right about something and no one wants to hear it because like, no, nah, shut up, shut up. You don't, you don't want to hear it, right? So they have something better. They know they have something better. They have no question. There's no doubt that their system was more fight ready than just about everything out, out there, maybe with the exception of combat sambo and like high level wrestling, you know, like other than that, man, like these guys were better martial like, when it comes to the, the practicality of fighting. They had a better system and they knew it too. But how do you go about promoting it? We don't have Hollywood on your side. Not only that, grappling is boring. Like it might be ugly to some people. Some people th- still think it's sexual. You see a guy in between other guy's legs. I'm like, what the hell are they doing? It's laughable if you're not into it. You look at it. And from the outside, you can understand why. It's very sad. <laughs> yeah. Just watch it. Watch a UFC card with people that don't r- train. These guys were doing it in Speedos too, which just adds all these like, oh, what's going on there, man? It's very homoerotic in some ways. If you're not, if you're not familiar with with jiu-jitsu and so you can see the troubles that they had selling it so they chose the only way they, i'm sure that they maybe if they had presented with better options if some movie producer say hey we're gonna make hugo gracie a movie star in hollywood i'm sure they would have preferred to do that than dojo storm but you know, the absence of like a hollywood producer is that we're gonna dojo storm we're gonna fight in the streets we're gonna challenge at the beach we're gonna you know and we're gonna have these indoor challenges and jiu-jitsu grew out of that and I have a lot of respect for that. I'm not one to say, like, I wouldn't teach that. I wouldn't want to be there. But I have a lot of respect for those guys because they, it was their way of selling jiu-jitsu. It's probably the only way, really. So even though I don't approve of it, I'm not one to be overly careful to be critical about it because it's because of them that we're here. So, like, when I see those guys, like, go doing these Valetudo challenges or these dojo, you know, challenges, the Valetudo Luta the Luta Libre Jiu-Jitsu, you know, challenge of 91. I'm like, hey, man, wait a second. Like, those guys basically gave birth, helped give birth to the UFC. So this this part I feel like is a really important and challenging part of today going forward because uh, as someone who is always enthralled by martial arts, whether it was watching Bruce Lee movies and Jackie Chan movies when I was a kid and just thinking that the fight scenes were like the coolest shit I'd ever seen in my life, to then wanting after my athletic career to actually get into practicing this on a, on a weekly basis and falling in love with it. There was part of the lure of the warrior spirit of these guys really did resonate with me. Like, wow, these people would just stand up to anybody and they'd put their whole reputation on the line and put this skill set on the line and take on bigger, smaller, faster, stronger. They didn't care. They would just do it and then also win with this system. Like I just, I thought that that was so incredible. And I look at the sport now, you know, martial arts has never been more popular than it is, especially with the growth of the UFC and Bellator and one and all these different areas that you can go as like a professional. And I wonder, will like, will losing that element actually hurt martial arts in the long run? Because even if you go back to, you know, some of the earlier, I, th- I think about it like this, like so you go back to some of the earlier UFC days. These are bad dudes that would have fought 
anywhere, anytime, any place, every single one of them across the board. Today, you have athletes. You have guys with like baseline D1 wrestling pedigrees as a minimum requirement that have athletic capabilities through the fucking roof that are skilled and gifted in every way that then are able to get coached and they're good learners and they become super proficient at the same time that they're recognizing, hey, it might be great if I can limit how many times I get head kicked between now and my <laughs> professional debut and then milk that for as long as I can. So do you think that that's a, something that we should try to keep like this aggressive mentality that's like anywhere, anytime, you know, come to my, my academy and I'll like, it doesn't matter. Anyone, my belt, my size, whatever, let's go. Or do you think it, that this can continue to grow and continue to get bigger and bigger without that ethos? I think that um, my, my new book, if I could divide into three things, it's like one given Carlson the credit he deserves Two was like the, the, the organization jujitsu, the, the, the rebranding of jujitsu went through in the nineties that has a lot to do with what you're talking about. And third, bringing back the reality of combat into jiu-jitsu. I, you know, I've become very critical of, of what jiu-jitsu is becoming, especially in the submission-only format. And I think it's submission-only has been very, very destructive to jiu-jitsu for a variety of reasons. Because, you know, I, I love it when, when I say that to people, people go, Rob, but it's so much fun to watch. And that's I go, that's exactly. It's not that it's what it's teaching it's teaching people things that are fun to watch right but they're very removed from the reality of combat for example like you know this is and i and i've written about this before and there's a lot of it in the book and it's not just directed at submission because I, I have my critiques of adcc rule set i've done that before or the IBJJF rule set even though in the case of IBJJF and adcc there there's some there's a progress what i call the progression paradigm like you're supposed to advance position where in theory you'd be able to strike down on your opponent before you get to the submission, right? Whereas, like, so when you remove positioning, which is essentially what submission only has done, because tactically it makes no sense to fight for submission for position, so you you only add the submission element, and like you make it maybe perhaps more fun to watch, more entertaining, more sell more tickets. That's what everyone wants these days, but. What about the reality of combat? You guys getting sitting down like this, which happens at BJF as well, for the record. You get the butt screen. You get guys attacking, you know, their top position. They give away top position and go for the foot. And that's a very dangerous thing to do in a fight. You know, my view of grappling, like, you know, it's funny. People, like, get mad at Khabib, you know, when he criticizes jiu-jitsu. It makes fun. I'm like, this guy's a better jiu-jitsu representative than anyone else. <laughs> I joke around, but it's true. The number one representative of jiu-jitsu. Yeah, it's Khabib and Islam. And like, oh, they're not some call it sambo if you want. Call it wrestling, call it whatever you want. What they're doing, that's what I'm interested in. Because that's the jujitsu that I idealized in my youth, and that's the jujitsu I and coming from someone who did spider guard extensively, you know, like I knew it wasn't gonna work in a fight and I moved away from it as soon as I start transitioning to no and MMA. You know, but I think that this this bringing this martial side of jujitsu back, which is interesting because that was Carlson's view from the beginning. Like he he loved competition. He saw the employee. He was like he was not a self defense kind of guy. He was competition, competition, but uh, you know, under a, 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 a towards a direction that led towards the efficiency of fighting, not towards you know winning by advantage after wrapping your opponent up in a lapel in a fifty. I mean, what is that? You know, you know how I compare that to, and I, I know I sound like people are gonna get mad when I say this, but this is how I feel about it. Remember those kids breaking boards in the eighties? The the wood with thin little boards. 
if Instagram existed then, people would be posting highlights of that shit nonstop. Look, my nine-year-old son just broke a wooden board. Me and you know that says nothing about you knowing anything about fighting. It may be fun to watch or whatever. Maybe call it entertaining, call it cool, but it's nothing to do with the reality of combat. When I see these lapel guards and the submission-only events, that's what I see. I see coolness. I don't see anything efficient about sitting your butt like that, losing composition for no reason, not like not even bothering a guy like passing your guard. Like they call it home alone. It's this right here. Someone passes your guard, which makes perfect tactical sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If you train a fighter for a submission-only format, I'll do exactly that. That's what's going to get you a win. Focus on the overtime. Put your energy into overtime. And but it's not. It's it's fun. But it's not. I mean, would you do that in a fight? Would you do this in the UFC? No, never. I mean, I mean, it's hearing you talk about this. It's interesting because here's another one of those things that I think I, I have an interesting perspective in that I'm a lowly purple belt who's been doing this for five years, right? As as a hobbyist who who's a little more addicted to doing it in terms of frequency than the average hobbyist, but like the the what draws you in and what what you initially feel at those first part is holy shit i didn't know anything about fighting like my experience i just got destroyed by someone half my size for 20 minutes and i left the academy going what the hell was that i need to know more it just it completely rocked everything i knew about myself because i was athletic i was strong i was quick i went to fabricio Werdum's gym in venice and i got throttled by this dude half my size I left there going, I need to know more about whatever that was. And as I got into it more, I started to develop the false sense of security that what I was learning was the magic sauce that nobody else knows that will protect me in any situation. You go through some evolutions and you start to realize that some of what you're learning has zero application and actually would put you in a worse position if something were really going on in Let's say that you're walking into the supermarket and your wife get attacked by some idiot and you step in to stop the situation. The odds of you grabbing his sleeve and his collar and he happens to be wearing a jacket and you throw your foot on his hip and you spider guard some sort of sweep and then you cross choke him. Like, that's not how you protect your family. That's not how you save your life. You want to get on top of that person and stop them until someone else can come and help or you can get an object or whatever. And so you keep going through this. And I, I, I'm conflicted on this, the, the submission-only stuff, because it's growing a sport. It's getting people that otherwise wouldn't watch, who maybe don't understand, to wrap their head around something they do understand, which is somebody is getting submitted and tapping. But I can't agree more. You're, not, uh, you're, learning, to, you're learning to defend yourself in a way that's not how you would ever defend yourself. You don't get in an altercation and go, well, in 18 minutes, this guy will get tired, and then I'll, I'll body lock myself up to his neck and choke him out. It's, it's, um, it's, it's, we could call, call, I think entertainment is, you know, beauty is in the eye of the beholder, as they say. And I, and I think that's, um, you know, something I, I, I can understand. Like, I disagree with what a lot of people say about submission only, but I mean, I don't think it, entertainment should be in the driver's seat. And I and I and I, I hammer that, that 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 theme a lot in my book because um, I think that what should be in the driver's seat is efficiency of combat because fads come and go, you know. And I, I if you remember, like the, probably the biggest celebrity in the world in the early seventies was Elvis Presley. Elvis Presley was arguably the biggest pop culture icon in the world, you know. Today it's Joe Rogan. What they have in common is that 
Elvis Presley did a lot for karate by promoting it. It made karate extremely popular. And it also led on this road of like, it diluted the, I mean, if you look at karate in the 60s, 70s, they were like, you can talk to these old timers about karate. They'll tell you like, no, no, we, we used to train like this way. You know, and then when it made to the 80s, 90s, you know, it became very commercialized and it lost a lot of its credibility in the process. And I think that jiu-jitsu is going under a similar emotion of popularity that's leading to a lot loss of credibility. And the the bearing bolos are just another example of that. The butt scooting, the submission, all the events. They might be cool. They might be fun to watch. But it's not efficient. None of that is going to work. Well, who, uh, what's his name? Um, Ryan Hall. Yeah. Right? Ryan Hall comes in and does some bearing bolo stuff. And basically gets knees on the face on his back on the ground. Like, that sucked for him. <laughs> No, and, and here's the thing, like, and, and Ryan is like an exception to the rule. He's probably the only guy that's made that. that I'm not saying that these things, I've seen Baron Boulder work in MMA, but I mean, we're talking about the margins here. It's like Anthony Pettis with the spinning kick off the fence against Ben Anderson. Like, it's you can't make a curriculum out of the, the margins. Like, what are the things that are working consistently? Your naked choke, guillotine, armbar, kimura, top control, ground and pound, body lock on the back, back, back control. That's Khabib. It's Khabib. <laughs> I Khabib to you. This is why to me Khabib is the best jiu-jitsu representative in the world. Because he adapted with the sambo, he knew the rest, and he knew he borrowed the best from jiu-jitsu that he could. And they created a system like this is the evolutionary track jiu-jitsu should have been on. But we went in a different direction because we wanted to please our demographics because of Instagram. We wanted to be cool and look at this lapel guard and look at this new whatever and the novelty of it. People don't want to drill or move. They want to learn or move. They just want to see it. Because if you don't show in three new moves every day, you don't know jujitsu apparently, you know. And and it's it's the evolutionary track we're on. It's a fad. But if you look at the history of martial arts, and I'm not an expert here, but I probably know more than most. You're going to trace it down from ancient Greece through the Middle Ages to Japan, wherever you want to. What what there's there's a common thread that's going to be it's a common theme in the history of martial arts, and that common thread is the reality of combat. It's not fads, it's not coolness, it's not popularity, it's not celebrities, it's not marketing, it's not ticket sales, it's not how cool or how old it is or how new. There's nothing to do with that. The common denominator throughout history is the reality of combat. What stays at the end is what works in a real fight. Everything else comes and goes. So when jiu-jitsu goes on an evolutionary track that is focused on these things that don't work in a real fight, it is a fad. It's going to go. If we want to be, if we want to last another 200 years, another 100 years, we have to stick to a mark. And that mark is the reality of combat. When I say this, I sound like, oh, you're old school. You're just, you're just grumpy because you're not young and competing and got it. Like, okay, I'll be quiet, but I know I'm right. I know I'm right because it's what happened to every martial arts before jiu-jitsu. This is not a new theme. You know, you're going to be cool. You want to be entertained. Wow. You end up like pro wrestling. Yeah, that way it's not, it's not a good, just because you're selling tickets doesn't mean... <clears throat> The martial arts on the right track. The, the right track is the efficiency of combat. You know how many you know how many uh, 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 UFC champions jiu-jitsu has produced in the last since the UFC really? I mean, not counting Hoist. I mean, Vitor Belfort. If you're going to count him, Anderson, BJ, Vitor. Well, I wouldn't call Ander Anderson for jiu-jitsu. I would count. No. I would count Vitor because he was more of a boxer than jiu-jitsu if anything. But I would count BJ. Murillo Bustamante and Virgil. You can't give it. You won't give Anderson the nod, the jujitsu nod. I can't, man. Like, hey, how many? I mean, how many people did he take? He out? had uh, triangle victories. I mean, I'm sure you have. Like, I'm yeah. not saying he can't do submission, but I wouldn't call him a jujitsu representative. 
Like it's it's difficult to see guys that came from the same background I came from that dominated. We're talking Mario Bustamante, DJ Verdun. Those are the three that come to mind. It's not a lot. I mean, compared to NCAA, you compare it to the, the, the collegiate wrestling circuit. Anyway, right. how many UFC champs have they produced? 50? Oh, well, I mean, at, that's, that's what's really fascinating right now is this transition of, of, one, how mixed the mixed martial arts is becoming, how well-versed you really have to be in, in everything. Like, you have, to, you have to have takedown defense. You have to have takedowns. You have to have ground and pound. You have to have jujitsu. You have to have striking. And if you're a, you know... It's so interesting when you see these guys who are put against each other, you know that they're incredible on the ground and they end up standing up. Yeah. Or you or you get fighters that want to prove a skill set that they've been developing. And so it, it changes the the jockeying for position and, and the format of it. But it's yeah, I, I mean you bring up surprisingly, you bring up a great point, right? About what the, the foundations of these fighters are. This is my, my point is jujitsu started the race ahead. Jiu-Jitsu invented, it's almost like we can't call ourselves the inventors of MMA, but we pretty much were. You understand? We, we were way ahead of American wrestling. We were way ahead of like Sambo practitioners. These guys hadn't even heard of it before we were doing it. Okay? Something happened. We lost, we lost the lead. Why did that happen? And I know why it happened. We lost track of what's important. We're, I mean, look, I, I have a foot in the Jiu-Jitsu world and I have a foot in the MMA world, right? MMA guys don't don't they're not interested in the jujitsu that they're seeing on Instagram. They see that said that's not interested. It's not going to work in a fight, and they're right because the jujitsu that they're interested in, right, is the one that jujitsu most jujitsu practitioners don't want to learn because they consider it to be inadequate for some reason. It's like, oh, okay, I know a head and arm choke. Can you do it efficiently? No, so you don't know it, right? Like it's like wrestling. If you look at wrestling and boxing, they don't have a lot of moves. They just work on the same stuff. It's the stuff that works consistently. I think if jujitsu wanted to optimize its performance the performance of its practitioners the focus should be similar to how wrestlers perceive wrestling or boxers perceive boxing there's like you know a canon of maybe 10 central moves that are worked on repeatedly and they're mastered by all practitioners and then there's the marginal moves and i'm not against the marginal moves but i have students of mine that don't know how to recover guard but they know all about the boogie choke and I'm like, really? No, That's, that never works. There's no hierarchy. Yeah. My point, the looseness of jiu-jitsu, the looseness of it is exactly what makes it so appealing. But it's also its biggest problem because there's no center. There's no right. order of events. It's like people learn whatever. They're picking from all these different angles. And that's not always optimizing towards, the, towards performance or, or the efficiency of combat like I would like to see. Super problematic, man, because... Jiu-Jitsu came from credibility of being able to work in a real situation. Like right. we've, I don't think we have that credibility anymore. As we have pop, it's popular. Joe Rogan says it. You know, Jocko Wilco says it all the time. So these parents walk into my gym and they go, well, Joe Rogan knows fighting. I don't. He must be right. I'm going to take my son to Jiu-Jitsu. They walk in the gym and they see a lapel guard 50-50 and they go, what the hell is that? I've been in men's fights. I've seen fights at school. That never happens. Well, but Joe Rogan said so. He knows more than I do. So it's probably. So they, and then later on, they absorb that as being normal. My students think it's normal to fight like that. They think it's like, oh, this is the best martial art in the world. I know. We know. We look at that and go, like, hey, that shit don't work in a fight. But we're teaching it, and it has become, I won't say the priority in jiu-jitsu, but it's almost, it's, it's what's being taught. It's not, so people don't, I, people just don't want to learn a double leg, man. They don't, they don't want to. It's like, ah, they want to learn. I got, a, I got a, like a kind of a zoomed out question for you because you're in an interesting position to answer this one 
pedigree, right? You've been a mixed martial artist. You've been a highly competitive jujitsu practitioner, ADCC, IBJJF, and you own a school, multiples. And there's a problem here with running a business and providing what people need to be true to the martial art and what people need to come in the door. Because let's both be honest. If two parents walked in and they saw people borderline throwing up, just grinding drills over and over and over to master a couple really important, crucial techniques that we know in a tournament, in a real-life situation, you want that intrinsic, actionable body mechanics that are just there, automatic, without you having to think about it. That's not sexy. It's not fun. And a lot of people, to be honest, you, you look at the total amount of people doing jujitsu in the, in the world, very few people are cut out for the workload that it actually takes to learn that way, right? Yeah. To actually be capable of, sure, right here, right now, let's go. One, to have the mindset to be able to do that and not cower away. But two, to have the physicality and the repetition and the cardiovascular conditioning and all this stuff. So how do you run a school? Obviously, you can do like the kind of advanced class competition only like you're only allowed to come here if you're very serious about it and here's the parameters. But also, you got to run a business. You know, you, you, you're, you have a role in growing this and creating a bigger footprint, getting jujitsu to more cities in the United States where it, does, where it doesn't exist. Yeah. So how do you hold true to that but also run the business side of it? So uh, it's a very good question. Um, and that conflict that you're describing between performance and business or entertainment, I, I think that that is, that's, I talk a lot about that in the new book because it's a problem. They're going in different directions. Sometimes they coincide, but a lot of times they're doing this. So the question is, which, where are we going? I th- to me, it's always about direction, right? If we want to make money, if we want to become popular, if we want to be cool and the trendiest, most popular martial art in the world, we keep focusing on entertainment, ticket sales, targeting all demographics, watering down the quality of the product. Practices that were used to be three hours long became two, 90 minutes, one hour. Now I know gyms that do 45 minutes. So that's what we're doing. More, more belts, you know, more belts. And just like, you know, so we, we that all that. Or we can go performance. Performance is going to be less people, different kind of crowd. It's going to be more Spartan. It's going to be less, you know, democratic. It's going to be uh, financially less profitable. It'll be, you know, wildly less popular to watch but we will maintain credibility. So what is it that we're we talking about? Let's cash in now and milk the hell out of jiu-jitsu. Just milk this thing, milk it, milk it, milk this 100 years of history built on the back of people who put their asses on the line, building what we call the most efficient, we used to call the most efficient market in the world. Or we're just going to go, no, we're going to maintain the course that has worked this far. And even if we're not the most popular, at least we're going to be the most credible. And I think that that is a decision we have to make. I think we already lost that war. I'm like a dinosaur here preaching, you know, to people that don't like Rob, you're out of your mind. Of course you're going to make money. And I think I do too. I don't, I'm not suggesting I don't make money, but I think that this mentality of turning the student into a client, which is the norm now, has been very harmful to jujitsu because once you put the customer in charge, then, well, he's in charge. Like we have the white post running the show, which is basically what's happening. Because if you're going to listen to your business clientele, you're going to do what they want because that's the most profitable strategy. Well, they want easy belts. They want easy trophies. They want easy classes. They want to be a black belt. And we're watering down the quality in the name of popularity and, and ticket sales and whatnot. I, 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 
I don't think it's a good direction. Sure, we got to pay our bills, but I think that it's important to find a balance. And I think we're starting to become a little off balance too. I'm watching. I know these guys well. I know this community inside out. I'm watching what they're doing. And I'm not going to say be a hypocrite or say that I haven't indulged in it in my life. I am part of the problem. I'm not saying I am the solution. I am bringing up the conversation because I think it's a it's an important one to have. If you know jujitsu is to maintain its credibility, what's what's left of it at least, and we don't become what we used to criticize. I wonder if if maybe the balance lies somewhere in, like within an academy, if you truly respect and represent the people that really want to work hard and be there and and fight and compete or or whatever, keeping that like a clandestine group that's really serious about it, that everyone's serious in there. But then also respecting the fact that you have to run a business and this thing needs to grow. And, and also, not to discredit, there are untold stories out there of people whose lives were 100,000% changed by jiu-jitsu who don't ever want to fight, who don't ever want to compete, that really had an impactful experience because they were exposed to this. And they feel confident in themselves now and they believe in themselves and they interact with people differently in their community because they can stand on their own two feet and jujitsu 100% gave that to them and that would be a travesty to lose out on that I think think a lot about what Fado was saying in your book in that interview like he's representing this group of people that is unspoken right they don't didn't have the confidence or the resources or the ability to do anything and he uplifted them like that guy's like the G in my head. I mean, that, hearing about him was so cool because I've never heard that story before. And every single one of those people that came into contact with him, maybe they didn't become UFC fighters or professional MMA fighters or jiu-jitsu practitioners, but their lives were changed. And that's and, a really important part of this. And, and ultimately, that is more important. I'm not disagreeing right. with you. My fear is that if something keeps losing value and you keep diluting it, the life that are being changed, that are being changed now, they're all real. And I know those stories too. I know plenty of people that, that, that had their lives changed. I'm one of them. Those are not going to exist 50 years from now, 30 mm-hmm. years. Because at some point, we're going to stop being trendy because trends come and go. And people are going to go, I'm just going to do the next cool thing. Because tomorrow, Joe Rogan is going to like, like <laughs> or the next Joe Rogan for that matter. He's going to like, you know, kites. He's going to like mountain biking. I don't know what. And then they're going to go, this is the greatest thing ever. And then all these guys that are like, who's half their life's changed. He's going to go, yeah, that's the greatest thing ever. And we're going to be this, you know, this struggling gyms, like, you know, barely keep the doors open because we lost all our credibility. My point is that, you know, there has to be a balance, you know, and I, I, I thought about doing this. It's a difficult thing to do, but I, I've completely separate jujitsu program. Really? Well, it, it would have to, it's for the Spartans. Like it's always practically MMA training, but with like the structure like jujitsu. And oh, it's, man, cool. I'm thinking, thinking through this and like, it sucks. Cause you're right, man. Like you start. No, it sucks. Trust me. Like I'm not sucks. happy with what I'm saying. It may sound like I'm happy, but I, 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 I hate the fact that this is happens. Like, man, I get it that we're bringing in all these guys with their cool, fancy tricks and it's cool, but. Man, we you have any idea what we're gonna look like to mar- real martial artists fifty years from now? They're gonna look back in this lapel stuff, and they're gonna go, "What were they thinking?" That is embarrassing, guys. And then they're gonna be right because that is like, what is that? Tell me what what is the purpose of a lapel guard in the real world? Tell me, like, it doesn't. It's 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 a fad. It's a cool. 
I mean, you could add lapels to the shoulders in the back. You can add more lapels to the gi, and you can sure people will come up with even more chokes. Why not? To the knees, to the yeah. ankles, to the hips, to the back of the neck, like extra collars here hanging from your neck. You could do that, and people will come up with creative ways of using it. But what is the purpose of that? I mean, where's the credibility? It's gone. I mean, you're, you're like, you're making me completely. So I, I personally like, I love to play spider guard. It's, it's great. I and I love it. I love it for shutting down like bigger, stronger people. You're making yeah. me not want to do any of that. Like for real, because you're, you're spot on. But okay. Is it salvageable? Like, so you think okay, so you have ADCC, right? ADCC is booming. It's it's growing bigger than than it ever has. This last event was phenomenal. Like even as I had friends that are not don't do jujitsu, don't roll, they were like, whoa, or sending me videos. You know, that's kind of a good sign. Like, hey, this thing's really circulating into uh, groups outside of the community. They're starting to see this. Like that's a a major step in terms of growth of a sport. Um, and they're not even, I know that they're not understanding what they're seeing, but it's still appearing to them as something great and they're feeling inclined to share it. So with the, the trajectory of ADCC, do you think that that's strong enough to pull and lift up some of this other kind of riffraff that seems to be forming or, or is it not a rising tide lifts all ships kind of situation? It's, what ADCC is, it's basically slightly modified IBJJF rules. It's the IBJJF rule set slightly modified, minor modifications. Like it's like 90% identical, 10%, you know, little tweaks here and there. Because it's no gi, it already has a different appeal to it. It's already more right. realistic in a sense. Um, so in some ways, yes, it is a correction. A lot of the leg, leg, leg attacks, I think, are very welcome. I think they are realistic. Not most of them, but a lot of them are very realistic. I'm more critical of leg attacks that compromise composition. I think that's a terrible idea. Because of exposure. Well, I mean, look, probably Gary Toner is probably one of the best in the world when it comes to leg attacks. Fair to say? Yeah. If he can get knocked out, imagine other people that don't have the skill level. Right. My point is like it's risky. I'm not saying you shouldn't use it. I think that there, you have to be careful where you're using it and when. I don't think it should be like just fall to your back all the time. Like a lot of the, the, the submission only format teaches that because it makes tactical sense not to give a shit about position. Right. Uh, but with the ABCC, there's there's one thing that's like this is sort of like you know I maybe because I have a different outlook on this. Jiu-Jitsu has been growing. Jiu-Jitsu is a 100 year project. Okay, this started in the 1920s. What we now call Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. It's been a long road. A lot of people have been part of it. Every every year, it gets bigger. It's never stopped getting bigger. ADCC is just another part of that same wave. It has been getting bigger because of the efforts that started 100 years ago. And a lot of people are involved, right? We've had these events. ADCC has always been getting bigger. So what you're describing is true, but it's also the norm. It is not unusual. It's bigger than the previous one, and the previous one was bigger than the previous one, which was bigger than the previous one. So this is a, a group collective effort I, I think the, the biggest protagonist, of course, is Hoist in the UFC. There's no doubt about that. The second biggest one is the IBJJF for giving structure to jiu-jitsu, even, even lending their rule set to ADCC. Where it's, whether it's acknowledged or not, it's 90% identical. And the third one is Joe Rogan and other celebrities. They've been huge. You know, they've given a huge marketing push to jiu-jitsu. So it's positive in the sense where, yes, we have a major show and people are getting paid well, and that's excellent. But I... I'm skeptic that, you know, we're really bringing new eyes to the sport because I think that the eyes that are watching it, if you go into that arena, you see, I don't know how many tickets they sold. I'm sure they sold a ton. 
I would say my guess would be that 99.9% of people in there already trained jujitsu. And they were introduced right. to jujitsu by friends and academies and Joe Rogan and you know, people that they're already in the jujitsu circuit. The difference is now they have a major event that is growing if it always has been. So I don't think it's something that is it is it is not a new it's a norm. It's as you just sport grows, you're gonna have bigger events. It's just another part of the wave. But I we I would never say that they're leading the growth. I think these guys like the celebrity cult thing is leading the growth. If there's anyone leading the growth, it's IBJJF and Joe Rogan. Like those two forces, right? if you ask me. And the other celebrity, Keanu Reeves, Jason Momoa, right. uh, Dan Hardy, Tom Hardy, whatever. Like all these guys, like, man, that's super great that they're doing that. But remember, we had that in the 70s with Elvis Presley, too. So just remember yeah. that it happened before. It's not a novelty that celebrities fall in love with martial arts. It is good, but not at the cost of credibility. And more importantly, not giving credit for people who walked into jiu-jitsu last week. Right. Let's not forget that there's a history here that goes back 100 years. And there's a reason why we're here. The heavy lifting was done back in those days. That was a heavy lifting. These guys are milking a cow. A cow that they well, the, cre- the, the credibility thing is really interesting for two reasons. One, I think in comparison to the past, the X factor is social media and the spread of information. So there were people like Elvis who are fans of karate. But there was, you know, one guy. I mean, now open your phone. Right. Yeah. everyone's doing jiu-jitsu. Well, I, I'm targeted for this stuff, so it, it appears more so that way. But with credibility, there's there's this weird thing going on, and maybe you can speak to this. I don't know if this is something that went on in the past. I don't know if when you look into the history of jiu-jitsu that this is a thing that was going on. But one thing that was, as a, as a preface, one thing that's interesting in the book is the history of belts and promotions and this ambiguity over, like, <laughs> whether Helio and Harlson were promoted by anyone if they promoted themselves, how promotions came about, and then obviously recognition of the business endeavor of promotion, right? It's a great way to secure longevity of your clientele, is that there's something that they can work for and move along. But I think of a, like the, the, a black belt, someone getting their black belt, it's like this very significant point in their evolution because of two reasons. One, their time spent doing it and two the recognition of more skilled people who've been around longer acknowledging that their skill level is up to par to deserve it yeah but what you have with this celebrity shit celebrities who don't train in an academy ever for whatever reason maybe they don't want the exposure they don't want to get hurt whatever it is training privately with someone and that person awarding them a skill level in this art form based purely on discretion of their like classes that they've put forth with this one person. I mean, I I can't think of anything more detrimental to the the credibility of a sport than that. That's like giving opening up a thing where you can play your favorite Olympic sport. And if you show up for enough training sessions, you get a gold medal. Oh, it's, it's, um, it's, and it's, I'll tell, and this is the problem with popularization. Like I talk, I know it sounds like I'm selling my new book a lot, but it's it's because I talk Sell about it. We'll read that and do another episode. <laughs> but this is what I'm writing about. It's like when, right. when you put the when you put a martial art or anything in the hands of the masses, right? And you focus on numbers. And if the majority wants A, we're going to give them A. They're going to dilute the quality of the product because they're going to want less in exchange for. Uh, they're going to want more in exchange for less. They're going to want more belts. 
more trophies, more recognition, more credibility. Give me, give me, give me. I want more sugar, 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 infatuate themselves with everything that's easy and pleasurable. And they're going to run the martial art to the ground because it's going to lose credibility. And when there's nothing left of it, they're going to spit it out like, ah, we lost interest. And they're going to move on to the next thing. You know, like there's, there's, there's a lot to be said about putting things in the hands of people that are in the sport because it's popular. The popularity of jiu-jitsu and the money, obviously, drew a lot of people that don't belong in the art, if you ask me. There are people that are part of the jiu-jitsu for the wrong reasons. They like they like the attention. They like the identity. But I don't, I'm not convinced they're in love with, with fighting. I don't know if I'm convinced that they're in love with what they're really doing. And as a result of that, they'll milk it. And then at some point, when it loses, there's no, the new fad comes along, the new Brazilian jiu-jitsu, the next great martial art, maybe it's sambo. Maybe it's something new. Who knows what it is 20, 30, 40 years from now. They're going to jump ship, you know, because it's like, oh, that's where the new fad is. That's where the popularity is because they're looking at wrong metrics. They're not looking at credibility. They're not looking at integrity. They're not looking at longevity. They're looking at what is it that that gives me something right now, right? It's something, it's, it's part of the individualism of the age. It's not jujitsu. It's the world. It's, it's, it's everything. But I think that that is not something that is lasting i think if longevity is a purpose you need a cohesive social cultural glue like judo has there's a reason why judo is 140 years old they have that and judo is not going anywhere we may have i think we outdid judo in numbers probably at this point but i don't think judo is going anywhere i think judo will be around 100 years from now i'm not convinced brazilian jiu-jitsu will be around as a dominant martial art 100. i hope i'm wrong i love what i do but do you think I, that the, the ibjjf and and people in your position the people that are you know been doing this for for years and years and have professional records and credibility should step in in instances like this and say hey uh i don't want to i don't whatever it's not my place to name names but to step in and say hey x person what on earth are you doing awarding this person uh a recognition in their their level when they have zero experience in any application situation like, should you guys be, should IBJJF step in and say, hey, uh, we need to establish a, a formality for, uh, like, awarding, I don't know, the next, the next level or, or, or take it out of the discretion of the, the, the professor? Or is that overstepping their boundaries? It's complicated because jiu-jitsu did not grow with a fixed political hierarchy like the Kodokan is for judo. And the Kodokan, right. the, the top-down order is very Japanese, maybe, whatever the case. Brazil is a different country. They grew up in, like, right. it's like, figure it out as you go. Like, it's, it's a very loose system of, even Jiu-Jitsu's own hierarchy, it's still not clear. There are many members of the Gracie family. Say, why is Carlinhos Gracie the head? Why is he the leader? Why not me? I'm older. You know, right. like, I, I, everyone's got a reason why they believe they're the Kahuna. Whereas in Judo, you have a more, I mean, I am not a Judoka. From my understanding, Kodokan is more rigid most likely a reflex of, of, of Japanese culture itself. Um, but I think that's beneficial. I think that, you know, first of all, if going back to the IJJF, if Jiu-Jitsu has any shape, it's thanks to the IJJF. I have my differences with them as far as the rule set goes, but in terms of structure, credibility, and order, and systems, thank God they exist. Because if it were not for them, this thing would have fragmented a long time ago. They give us the credibility. They have systems and order and structure and curriculums and tournaments that start on time for once which was a huge problem throughout jiu-jitsu's history we have trained it's not perfect many flaws but it's the best we got 
Like there's no one that is, I mean, they're throwing 130 tournaments a year with like thousands of competitors and they run on time. And Jiu-Jitsu needs that for credibility because if we keep doing things the way we were doing them before, you know, and they can't start a tournament on time and you don't know when you're competing. It's madness. And who's a black belt? Who's a red belt? Who gets the stripes? When? Oh, this guy's a black belt for two years. It was, we were going in that direction, man. Yeah. Remember, these things were happening until I did. Jeff came in and created systems. You cannot get your paperwork signed unless you've had a belt for X amount of years. Thank God they did that. People give them shit for that. Had they not created that order, we would have 12-year-old black belts by now. So if there is any shape to do it, it's because of them. With that being said, the boundaries of what they should and shouldn't do, it's not up to me to decide. My opinion, I think there should be a fixed curriculum that is has it is loose on the margins, but is fixed in the center, right? The core of it is fixed, like it is in boxing and wrestling and judo, and its margins are loose and flexible and creative. Uh, I would have a code of behavior on the mats that no one is reinforcing because now it's, I mean, the biggest force shaping jiu-jitsu now is Instagram. It's insane because it's a bunch of like white boats clicking. The white right. belts, nothing. They're clicking, they're writing, they're talking, and then it boosts up. It does what the algorithm? It boosts up the crap to the surface, and sends anything that's quality to to the, the bottom of the pit. And then that right there is guiding the evolution of jujitsu and what people want because it's the majority. Everyone wants to go this way; they're going to go that way. And right. it's I, I mean, do, do white belts know what's best for jujitsu? Are they going to be around six months? I don't now? know what's best for jujitsu. <laughs> I mean, it depends. depends. I I think it's the efficiency of combat. I think, like, I get mad at me all you want. Khabib is, I'm going to say it again. Khabib is the best jiu-jitsu representative in the world. Because he does what those guys were, what what the guys in the 80s in Brazil were doing, or 90s. Like, the days where jiu-jitsu was dominant in a fight. If you watch them, they were less evolved versions of Khabib. Khabib just of being continued on that evolutionary track. Sure, it came from wrestling and sambo. But he ended up exactly where jiu-jitsu was going until this stuff that doesn't work in a fight became the norm. And we accepted it. I like spider guard too, man. That was my favorite guard. That's all I did as a purple belt. You know? But let's be frank here. It's not going to work. It doesn't work in a fight. But it's to become the core of jiu-jitsu. These reversed lahibas. Yeah. Ooh, I think it's beautiful too. Not going to work. Try but that. When we had a, one of our coaches, a former Bellator fighter, Steve Pizzola, and he one day he, he said, hey, when we're going to train, but I'm going to put a knife over here. It was a plastic knife. Yeah. And he's like, I want to do this just so that you, for a hot second, get like the perception of if this were not in a jiu-jitsu academy. And I was like, okay. He's like, so I'm going to put this over here, and here's how we'll do this. If one of us gets our hand on it, we stop, and we start again. And we started in a couple different positions, right? Cross-legged, we started on our back, we started different positions. And it was like a go and then engage. And what I learned in this really small little example was that all that shit's out the window immediately because if it's a knife, if it's a gun, if it's a brick, if it's a friend, if it's anything else, it doesn't work. Like, it's so much different. And that's a knife. That's a different situation. But he also takes time to explain a lot, like, raining down punches, right? Like, if I'm actually, if you're in my guard and you're trying to punch me, what I can do is very different than if punching is completely off the table. You know, you know why, you know why shin to shin didn't evolve in Brazil in the 80s? It's not because Brazilians are stupid. You know why? Because once a week they would train with slaps. You know why they, <laughs> they did that? They why? call it confetti, to check. Confetti means to check in Portuguese. To check your jiu-jitsu. Because if you're doing anything that wouldn't work in a fight, 
and get smacked in the ear. So if you set up for a shin to shin guard, like these guys are doing, they're connecting hands and sitting to their butts, you get smacked in the ear and then you will never do it again. It was a way of keeping jujitsu real. That was the right evolutionary track. We've diverted from that because you can't hit people in the head anymore. Okay, we can't hit them. Can I touch you with a small glove maybe? Just let you know, hey, this is not going to work. <laughs> Just to remind you. Yeah. I think that should be right. I do that with my students sometimes. I'm always shocked by their reaction. Like, I mean, that went, I've done this a few times, but like I'll put my small gloves and I'll be like in their garden, I'll, boop, I'll touch them in the chin. And they're like, and I'm like yeah. whoa, why? You know what I'm saying? Like, dude, I didn't hurt you. Did you hurt? No, you're not hurt. Okay, but I taught you a lesson, didn't I? Yes, coach. What did you learn? I learned that I shouldn't be doing that. Like, punch. ah, okay. That's the jujitsu I'm interested in. It's practically dead. Because if I do that, people are not even, oh, that's not real jujitsu. Real jujitsu is what Instagram says it is. So I think that jujitsu used to be for almost 100 years. It was tightly under the control of the Gracie family. And that was a good thing for the most part. Now it's in the controls of white belts clicking, white belts, white belts clicking. All right. It's funny that you bring up this slap thing because another, it was another thing that he brought into. He was just awarded his black belt this past year, but he had been bringing this into training too, that sometimes, okay, we're going to start in, you know, half guard top, light slaps if you have the opportunity. And again, it changes your perspective of what you're looking for and what you're watching out for because the reality is that all that, most of the stuff that you go for exposes you. It doesn't protect you. And if you're exposed, you're going to get slapped in the head. And if you can get slapped, you can punch. And if you got punched, then you wouldn't know what was going on and then it's a real problem. When, when you're in your academy... And you're instructing. Well, one thing I want to hear hear your insights on too with the IBJJF. What would be the rule changes that you make? I, I, I honestly, man, I would like <laughs> I because I, I, I have a good relationship with the IBJJF guys, so I tell them this, like, you should never listen. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'd flip everything up. I, I'd probably be like make too many changes, you know? Right. But, uh, Overhaul. But if I could, in my perfect world, in my idealistic world, I. I would have wrestling rule set, almost identical to wrestling. I would just add submissions. I would have wrestling with submissions. And I think there would some tweaks so, here. But so I basically would, wrestling that doesn't have the back pin goal. Yes. Well, it does have the back pin goal, but it I must end in a submission. But I would be, I would make it clear the top person's win. You keep the, 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 the right time, like a minute or two minutes. If you're on top, you're getting hit. Even or perhaps add punches. Like if you're at punches and you're like touching the guy like on the body, like letting them know that he's losing the fight. There are ways of scoring points, ways that I thought about like scoring points that way to show the guy on bottom that he's losing the fight. Uh, but I would keep it very similar to wrestling. And I think wrestling is like probably, you know, for, for MMA is probably the best system is that it's lacking submissions. Once these guys learn submissions, they learn faster than anyone else. But I think that they're lacking submission. A lot of them are very proud about learning it too. They're very hard to work with because the ones that are open-minded they be like the guy Nick Rodriguez, case in point. You know, he's, he wasn't even an elite wrestler, but look how well he's done because he was open-minded enough to go, wait a second, I'm going to learn this submission stuff and look how well he has done. Now imagine if the NCAA circuit did the same. Huh, man. Oh, I dumb. mean, hey, people would be, in-house. you know, I grew up I grew up in a town where wrestling was the only thing, jiu-jitsu didn't exist, and I was too busy with other sports, so I never did it, but... It wasn't like it didn't look cool. Now I think it's cool because I see it. it I see its representation and function in mixed martial arts in the UFC. But you add submissions to like an NCAA tournament. Yeah. You know, I, I heard this from Bob Anderson. I don't know how true this is. I never verified but Bob is like an old timer and he's interviewed in a new book. And he said back in the day, wrestling had submissions. They removed mm-hmm. it once they implemented it and put it into high school. 
because, you know, they, they, they thought submissions were dangerous. We know that submissions aren't dangerous. Takedowns are, if anything. But they removed For it. Sure. <laughs> like, I mean, I think that the ideal system is a system that has focus on top control, positioning, with submissions, without neglecting submissions. Like wrestling has what jiu-jitsu doesn't have, which is the top control, strong element, which does exist in theory, but in practice, it's not enforced. And But it lacks, you know, wrestling lacks the submissions, right? So um, a, a submission system that favors top control, I think that would be the evolutionary track that guys like Khabib are on. Like that's the course right. that should be going on if it wants to be the most, perhaps not the most practiced, but the most efficient martial in the world. When you're awarding a black belt in your own academy, what are the the characteristics that you're looking for? Is it a, a time and duration based thing or are there actual qualities that you want to see this person possess? And then how does that change across the age skew? I, I conceded a long time ago to doing what everyone else is doing. It's time based. If you show up yeah. you know, long enough, you're gonna you're gonna get promoted. But I am thinking about systems of you know, making a distinguish a distinction between a black belt that is just a practitioner, a black belt that is a, co- a coach, and a black belt that is a fighter. So different kinds of ranks for people with different skills. Because you may be a phenomenal teacher, but you can't fight, or you may be a practitioner, but you can't teach and you can't fight, or you know, you, you know, say so these things. So different kinds of ranks to distinguish, because they're not. We all call them black belt, but they're completely different. You can't compare you know, a Charles Oliveira to the average black belt in the gym that just trains for fun. They're not the same, clearly. You know, you yeah. can't, you know, it's like, I think that it's important that we ought to create these distinctions, these different ranks to make sure that, even for credibility purposes, I think you should award a person who's putting the time into jujitsu, but I don't, I don't think they should have the same rank as a guy like Fabrice Verdun, for example. Yeah, it's hard to say because on, like, that's a tough one too. You don't want to start creating all these different belts because then you have too many belts and it just discredits the whole belt system. Yeah. Part of what works is the fact that it's simple. It's only five. So it's it would be tough to to make like a <laughs> a legitimate black belt versus just the black belt. Yeah. But that I mean that goes back to that that's a growth problem, right? Things grow and then they get more people involved and then you have to change or, or or modify the way that things are awarded to maintain the credibility so that you do feel like someone who has X representation actually embodies what that's all about. Yeah. And and man, like listen, like it sounds like just to, to finalize it, because I gotta get going in a few. Yeah. Um I, I love jujitsu, man. This is my my life. I'm not I'm not hating on like I, I wish I, at the end of the day, as long as people are training, they're not at home sitting on the couch playing video games on TikTok. Uh, it's a win. Like, you know, that, I think that's way better than nothing. I I like I like to be like the little devil on people's shoulders, just remind them of like, you know, just to give it some it's just a personality like, trait. Yeah, I, I have like there are too many voices in, in, in jujitsu that are saying money, 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 money. Like that is the metric of success. I don't I think that is that ought to be a side effect of better metrics. Like that is a way of measuring success. Success. It shouldn't be the the, the one in the driver's seat. So I like to be the voice like, hey, man, I like money, too, but let's maintain the integrity of jiu-jitsu so we have longevity inside. If we over-commercialize and dilute the quality of the product, people are going to lose interest because it's going to lose the credibility that made us popular to begin with. And I think we're already perhaps too far down that road. But, you know, if I have any purpose in in jiu-jitsu today, my job is to try to, like, push people back to where we came from. 
instead of going down this road, which I think is going to, in the long term, is going to be very bad for jujitsu. And I think we're starting to see the signs already. Well, hopefully there's there's time left to correct it. I'll leave you with one more question before you go because I know you got to get back to training. Who invented the airplane? Uh, it depends on what you actually spent on <laughs> research it, right? and I got the answer. <laughs> it depends on what you consider an airplane. So does an airplane should does an airplane take off? I think so. Does it does it take off on its own? Uh, would that would that exclude like does assistance it, and propul- like people can push it or no? Does it require does an does an airplane by definition require an engine? Yes or no? I don't think so. No, it doesn't require an engine. I don't think by definition. Okay, so but you, I'm also not I'm I'm being fair here. I'm not looking it up right now. Either. You're probably siding with the right brothers. If you define an airplane like something that took off on its own and landed on its own without any help, then you're Santos Dumont. If you believe that an airplane is anything that flies, whether it has an engine or not, then you're with the Wright brothers. That's what it comes so, down. To. Okay, I get it. So Wright brothers invented the airplane. Cool. I, I appreciate that. I I, I mean, <laughs> listen. I, I remember how this comes from. I have like one of my oldest childhood memories. <laughs> Is my mother in this like heated debate with a Mormon missionary over who yeah. for hours? I'm just like watching. My mom is just, like fuming, and this other like you know American missionary, he's just like ah, they're going at it. And I'm like, holy shit, this is interesting. I got to figure out what happens. But that's what it comes down. To. It's a matter of definition. Well, and that that is therein lies why people should read this book. It's that question in essence, right? It's one one question with many different answers, and I think you've done a fantastic job at exposing a lot of the history. I really enjoyed it. Everyone can check it out. It's going to be in the show notes. And once again, Robert, I appreciate your time so much. It's been an honor having you on here. And when the other book comes out, I'd, I'd love to circle back on it. I'm sure that if it's anything like this one, there's going to be a lot of great touch points in there. And um, I'm sure the listeners will love to hear it. Absolutely. Well, we'll be back soon, man. I'll send you a copy. Mm-hmm.